Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. If your Bible is handy, I'd like you to uh, find your Bible and make sure that uh, you're ready to open God's Word as we study together. And uh, the question that perhaps, uh, I don't know how many people ask themselves this question, but have you considered when you were planning to come to camp this year, have you asked yourself the question, why am I going to camp? this year. And I don't want you to answer me, but I want you to think in your mind, why is it that you wanted to come to camp? Was it to catch up with some friends, to, uh, to look up some people that uh, you haven't seen for a while, or what was the reason that you had to come to camp? And what is the right reason that we should have to come together and worship God? So just keep that in mind, because the title of our study today is, uh, tonight, is entitled Uniting to Finish the work. And there's something very important going on in the world today. Something so disastrous and chaotic, it is a problem that is labeled as sin in the Bible. And God has entrusted a special group of people in the last days to solve that problem if they commit all to Him. Now this problem in the world is, has been uh, going on for 6,000 years. And it is the purpose of God to end this problem through the work that He wants to do through His people. That's through you and me tonight. And so tonight we're going to look at what is, what is it that uh, God wants us to do in order to finish the work, and what are the parallels and types that God has given us to enable us to fulfill this mission successfully. And the best example to look at is the example of Christ. You know, in order to finish a job, in order to learn how a job is done, the best thing to do is to see someone who has done the job, and you can learn from that someone. And a good example is given to us in John chapter 17. If you take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 17, and we will look at what Jesus says in those verses. John chapter 17. And in John 17 verse 4, Jesus praying to his Father, and he says, I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. When Jesus finished the work, at the end of his life, he said, I have glorified thee on the earth. By Christ finishing the work that his Father gave him, Christ was really doing what? He was bringing glory to his Father. So it's a very, very important principle. Finishing the work that is committed to us brings glory to who? To the Father. Now, this is a very important principle that many times is misunderstood. If we inverse that, maybe the impact of it will strike us a little more. If we do not finish the work, then we are really doing what? Dishonoring who? Our Father in Heaven. So now it takes on a little more serious impact. And so every day that passes, every week that passes, every month that passes with its load and train of sin that is passing to the heavenly sanctuary that heaven has to behold, every time that the work is delayed a little longer, what is happening in heaven? Our Father is being dishonored. You know, when Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, God's plan was not for them to spend 40 years in the wilderness, was it? God's plan was to take them immediate, immediately into the promised land. And uh, Israel, because of unbelief, they failed and they had to spend 40 years in the wilderness. Do you think that God's name was dishonored among the heathen when he did not bring them in? It took him 40 years. And it took him 40 years not because the problem was with God, but the problem was 
with the people. And if you read in the Spirit of Prophecy, you'll find that that's exactly the case. Israel's delay for 40 years brought dishonor upon God's name. And the plan had to be altered a little bit in order for them to possess the promised land. And so, not finishing the work today is a problem in that it brings dishonor and it robs God of the glory that he has. So do you think this is an important issue? It certainly is. If we really love our Father in heaven, it is an issue that should concern us all. Now Christ, as our example, he said he has finished the work, he has glorified his Father in heaven. So we need to ask ourselves, how did Christ finish that work? Because what he says is the principle that will help us or enable us to finish the work. And if we turn in the same chapter, uh, just drop down a few verses, we'll come to verse 18. And we'll see what Christ says in verse 18. John chapter 17 and verse 18. And the Bible says, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. So here we see a parallel. The same way that Christ was sent into the world is the same way that he will send his people. So in order for us to understand that we can finish the work, all we have to do is see how did Christ do it, because in the same way that Christ was sent, it's the same way that we are sent, his people. Let's continue reading, verse 19. Jesus says, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Verse 21. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Verse 21 is what we want to focus on. Verse 21 says that they all may be one. And here Christ was telling us that the one important factor in finishing the work is the factor of unity. And so our theme for this camp is Unity, coming into the unity of the faith, uniting together. And the purpose for uniting together is not so that we can get along easier with each other. The purpose for uniting together, the higher purpose, is to do something to bring glory to our Father in heaven. And that is to finish the work. And so this is the underlying factor, the underlying, underlying motive, to bring glory to God. So it's not just uh, wanting to be uh, friends with each other and wanting everything to run smoothly. Now Christ says that they all may be one, and then he uses the example. He says, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. So was Christ united with his Father on earth? He most certainly was, and we'll see in a minute what that really means. So in other words, God's people are required to be united with God before they can be united with each other. And today when we talk about uniting to finish the work, rather than thinking it's uniting with each other, our first purpose and first motive is to be united with God, to be united with Christ. It's only when we do that that we can actually unite with each other. Now, Christ also says in verse 21, he says, As uh, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. When Christ says us, who is he talking about? He's talking about the Father and the Son. True unity is found and based in union with two beings, the Father and his dear Son. And when you have union with the Father and the Son, through their spirit, of course, then notice what happens. The last part of that verse, it says that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So in this verse, Christ has outlined very clearly how is it that we will capture the attention of the world. That the world will believe that truly Christ was sent from the Father when his people are truly united. 
And the first uh, principle of unity is to be united with the Father and with His Son. To be one in Christ. And we're one in Christ, we can come together. Now it's a very important principle that Christ carried out in His life. You know, if Jesus said, as I was sent, you know, I've sent them as thou hast sent me. That means Christ exemplified this unity with the Father. At the end of His life, He could say, I have glorified thee on the earth, I have actually finished the work which thou gavest me to do. So what was it about Christ being united to the Father? What does that really mean? Well, the words of Christ in John chapter 8 are very significant to give us an illustration of how is it that Christ was united with his Father. What does that really mean? Of course, it's being filled with his Spirit, but we look at the words of Christ and see what he actually says, how he was able to finish the work. John chapter 8 and verse 29. John chapter 8 and verse 29. The Bible tells us, Jesus speaking, he says, And he that sent me is with me, the Father hath not left me alone. For I do always those things that please him. What a testimony. You know, if you could uh, stand up before the world as a witness and you say, you know what? I do always the things that please the Father. True unity is doing those things that please God. When your will and God's will are harmonized together. And God can say, do you want to know about me and about how much I love you? Why don't you look at this person's life? Or look at that person's life. Look at this sister or that brother. Look at this young child. Look at this youth. Because they do always the things that please me. This is what Christ said. This is what Uh, he meant when he said I was fully united with my father and at the end of this Christ said I have finished the work and so when God's people reach a point where they're united with God in such a way that they indeed do those things that please him they will be enabled to finish the work and so another uh, verse that illustrates this we don't have to uh, turn there but the Bible tells us about Christ he says I delight to do thy will O my God yea Thy law is within my heart. Christ's delight was to do his Father's will. And so Christ could say, I do always those things that please him. This was not just said and recorded for the, in the Bible to record a historical fact. The Holy Spirit chose to impress and inspire the writers of the Bible to record this passage for us today. Because this is the type for us. This is the example that we are to seek. That when we are united with God, we will really do the things that please Him. And in order to do the things that please God, we must first understand what these things are. Let's come to 1 John and see how the Apostle John again puts it, applying the same to us. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 22. In the back of the Old Testament, verse John, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 22. And in 1 John 3.22, the Apostle tells us, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Do you think John had union with Christ? He says right here, we do the things that please God. Where do you think he learned that from? From Christ, three and a half years with Christ and onward. And it's interesting that John, in writing, he says his fellowship, really, if you look at the beginning of this book, just to illustrate the fact that we just found earlier, come to the first chapter of the same book and see who's, who did John fellowship with in First John chapter 1. 
and verse 3. And we will find the application between the master and the disciple, which is given for us today. First John chapter 1 verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Do you think John applied the words of the prayer of Christ that he heard? He most certainly did. And that apostles carried out the work that they had to do in their time. And so today, in the last generation, the same question comes to us. Do we really want to glorify our Father in heaven by finishing the work? The prerequisite for us to do that is to be united with Christ. In order to do that, we must be united with Christ. And it's only when we have unity in Christ can we come into unity with each other. In the Spirit of Prophecy, we have a beautiful illustration where it says, picture a large circle. And all of us are standing on the edges of that circle. In the center of the circle is Christ. And as each of us individually come closer to Christ from the edges of the circle, we will naturally come closer to each other. And so seeking unity is not saying, let's sit down and let's see how we can unite on point. Seeking unity is found in coming close to the center of the circle, to the head, which is Christ. And so this, the Bible tells us, is how we glorify God. Let's have a look at John chapter 15, just to make sure that we are really on the right track. John chapter 15. The words of Christ there are very significant for us. John chapter 15. And a beautiful verse in verse 8. John 15, 8 says, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. So Jesus said that his Father is glorified when we, as his disciples, bear much fruit. Now notice how we are going to bear this fruit. Let's look at verse 3. Verse 4, I'm sorry. Look at verse 4, how we are to bear the fruit. Verse 4 says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. And so in order to glorify the Father, in order to bear much fruit, we are not to exert more effort. We are not to try and uh, develop new means of outreach to the world. Christ says, without Him we can do nothing. In order to finish the work, we need to make sure that we are united with Christ. And we talk about this a lot, and we understand this many times, but we need to look a little more practically today. What does it mean to do those things that please Him? What does it mean to be united with Christ? Christ told us that I delight to do thy will, oh my God. He does always those things that please him. In order for us to understand how we can finish the work, we need to understand what is God's will for the last generation? What is it that the last generation can do that can please God, that can enable them to finish the work and glorify him? And the answer for this is in the last Old Testament book in Malachi, chapter 4. And the question we're asking ourselves now is this. What is God's will for the last generation that will enable them to do those things that please Him, to glorify Him, and enable them to finish the work? Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. It tells us, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Okay. Now, I think as Adventists, we are very familiar with this verse. And we're very familiar with the, what is called the Elijah 
message. We're so familiar with it, we know how to finish uh, the sentence. The Elijah message. Now here we have a prophecy that is uh, given us, that before the coming of the great day of the Lord, before the great day and dreadful day of the Lord, we have a prophecy here that Elijah, the prophet, will be sent. Now, a lot of us are very familiar with the Elijah message, and we talk a lot about the Elijah message, but something that we need to understand very clearly is that the Elijah message is not just a message, but it's actually a living testimony. And that means that Elijah message is not just what Elijah gave, or the message that he gave, but also the actual life of Elijah, the person, illustrates a living testimony, which is a type of what God wants the last generation to do. And so today we look at a few parallels in this testimony that God has given us in Elijah the prophet. Many times we just look at the message of Elijah, but today we're going to look at a few of the experiences of the man Elijah and see, are there any types, are there any parallels that in the story of Elijah illustrate for us God's will, because God says Elijah will be sent before the coming of the great and dreadful day of God. So the Elijah message is more than just a message, it is actually a lived out testimony. It is living the will of God, not just declaring the will of God. A very big difference. And many times we go into the theory part and we are very happy to declare the will of God to the world. But the question we need to ask ourselves tonight is this, am I actually living the will of God in my life, as he has outlined for us in the Bible? So let's go to the Old Testament and see the story of Elijah. Let's come to 1 Kings and chapter 16. And the story of Elijah is a very familiar story to many of us. And it's interesting that uh, Elijah is one of those mysterious people in the Bible that we don't have very much information about. We have very, very few uh, references to Elijah, just a few chapters. He comes on the scene and then he disappears. And yet there is a very important prophecy regarding Elijah. And so it's very important to look in detail at the small record that is recorded of the life of Elijah, because the Holy Spirit chose to inspire certain details of the life of that prophet that will help us understand God's will for us in the last days. You know, the fact that there is so little written about Elijah should prompt us to look even deeper into what was written, because surely that is very important. Because God says a prophecy in that Elijah will come before the great and dreadful day of God. Now, First Kings 16, we have the time of Elijah. Now, Elijah was a man that pleased God. Do you think Elijah was a man that pleased God? Well, Elijah, where is Elijah now? Up in heaven, listening to tonight's discourse, perhaps, huh? About him. Elijah was a man that was translated to heaven. Now, that's a very high testimony. Not many people in the history of mankind have been translated without seeing death into heaven. We only know of another one. Who is it? Enoch. But in the last days, God is preparing a generation of people that he wants to do that very special thing for. He wants to translate them into heaven without seeing death. And so Elijah stands as a type for that last generation. And the life of Elijah and the experiences of Elijah illustrate God's will for Elijah and for the last generation. So that they don't only have declare God's will, but they actually live out in their lives God's will. And so as we look at some of these things, I want you to pay careful attention as we see some of the parallels that might develop as we look at the story of Elijah. In First uh, Kings chapter 16, let's look at the setting, the historical setting of when Elijah came onto the scene. 
First Kings chapter 16, and we'll read verses 30 and 31. And this is the background of when Elijah came on. It tells us who was king at the time. First Kings 16, verse 30, the Bible tells us, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Verse 32, And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. Now this is a historical background of what was happening in the kingdom when Elijah comes on the scene. Elijah comes on the scene in the next chapter, chapter 17, verse 1. Let's look at it. It says, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Now this is the first mention that we hear of. Elijah. So Elijah appears on the scene at a time when God's chosen people are doing what? Worshipping Baal. At a time when they are worshipping other gods. When they are worshipping false gods. Now that's a very interesting point that you need to keep in mind because God is using this example as an illustration for the last generation. The Elijah message, the man Elijah came on the scene at a time when God's people, not the heathen, not the Gentiles, but it was who? God's chosen people. What were they doing? They were worshipping false gods. And Elijah comes on the scene. Very important parallel and type as we look at the situation that is happening today among God's people. Where the Elijah message is to make its way. Now, Elijah came with a very solemn message. He came and said there will be no rain and there will be no dew until I say. And he disappeared off the scene. And the rain that is uh, in the Bible used a literal rain many times is used to symbolize the spiritual aspect symbolizing the spiritual rain and today we're living in a time when there is really an expectation waiting for what we call the latter rain and so we have the Elijah message is very involved with the coming of the rain when Elijah appeared on the scene there was no rain and then when Elijah appeared again on the scene the rain came when the showdown happened so during the time that Elijah went into hiding when there was no rain, God, uh, Elijah endured a famine and uh, a famine of rain. Of course, there was no, uh, there was a shortage of food, and God sustained him. Let's look at verse five and six of the same chapter and see what parallel is there in this experience that might happen in the last generation's experience. Verse five and six, Elijah. Uh, did the following. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And so here we see Elijah endured a time of famine, a time of trial, and who sustained him during this time? God sustain him. Do you see any parallels that might happen for the last generation where they will be called upon to endure a time of trouble or a time of trial when they will be sustained by God? And so the man Elijah again illustrates for us a principle in that he is a type for the last generation. Now if you think about this for a minute, you know, if I was in Elijah's uh, place, I would think it's quite odd that a raven comes along flying and he drops some food for me and I go and eat it. 
You know, it's a very strange uh, thing to think about. That God chose this method to provide for His prophet. So you send ravens in the morning, and what would the ravens bring him? Bread and what's the verse say? And flesh. And so God uh, selected the menu for Elijah, and the waiters in that menu were the ravens. And so the ravens would bring the food to Elijah, and Elijah would eat in the morning and in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. And of course, this uh, setup after a while changed, and Elijah went to another town. But it's interesting that this aspect of Elijah illustrates God's ex- uh, the experience of God's people in the last days, because the Bible tells us that in the time of trouble, his bread and water shall be sure. And there will uh, come a time when we'll have to rely on God's agencies, whether they be ravens at that time, or uh, whatever agency God will use to sustain God's people, the last generation that will go through a trial. Now, after this experience, of course, we have the story of when uh, Elijah came back and uh, Mount Carmel, and there was a showdown. There was a showdown between the two systems of worship. And the showdown happened where? Mount Carmel, among God's people. So the Elijah message, first uh, of all, comes at a time when God's people are worshiping false gods. Elijah, the man Elijah, illustrates the experience of God's people that they will go through a time of trial. It also shows that there will be a showdown that God's people will be required to choose to worship, whether they worship God or whether they worship Bow. And so it's a very interesting experience. And we know the outcome, of course. Elijah prayed to the only true God, and God answered by fire from heaven. And he showed who was the true God. And after that experience, Elijah fled to the wilderness. Let's come to chapter 19. And what we're looking at, we're just looking at a few instances in the life of Elijah, the actual life of Elijah, to understand what it can illustrate for us today. Chapter 19. Now, this is a very interesting point that I'd like you to pay careful attention to. Because Elijah was now fleeing, and he was fleeing uh, to meet with God. He went to the mountain of God, the Bible tells us, to Horeb, the mount of God. And uh, let's just read it and see what we can learn. Let's look at verse 5 and 6. Of course, he got the threat from Jezebel, and so he uh, escaped. Let's actually read from verse 4, just so we can get some context. Because this is very interesting. Verse 4 says, chapter 19, But he himself, that's Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. A very severe trial that Elijah went through. Verse 5, And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. Verse 6, And he looked, and behold, there was a cake, bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink, and laid him down again. Okay, here we see God's agency in bringing Elijah. Food has changed. Now God's using... An angel came and woke him up. An angel prepared some food for him. And he told him, get up and eat. Now, do you think that would be something nice if you're out in the wilderness one day and God sends an angel and he prepares you a meal and he says, wake up and eat? You know, that might very well be the experience of God's people when they're in the last days. And God tells us through the story of Elijah some of the agencies that he will use to sustain them. Now, after this, this happened a second time as well, of course, And uh, let's look at verse 8. 
We'll read verse 7. We won't skip it. Verse 7 and 8. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. So Elijah was going to meet with God. And what better place to meet with God than to go to the mountain of God. Now what's special about this mountain, Mount Hori? The mountain of God. Okay, do we know anything about the mountain of God? Why is it called the mountain of God? Yes, the law was given. This is the mountain where the law of God was proclaimed. And so what a safe place to go and uh, run and escape to meet with God. Now it's interesting that when Elijah was coming to meet with God, you notice that his menu, his diet, was actually changed by God. It was actually changed from the time that he was in the famine of rain, and then it now changed, became something else. What did he eat when the ravens brought him food? Flesh and? And bread. Now we see God, now it was God that gave him that diet at the time, was it not? Yes, now God changes his diet, just at the time when Elijah is coming to meet with God, he changes his diet, his diet now becomes what? Cake and bread. So what got dropped out? A flesh. Do you think that's an interesting parallel at all for the last generation? Do you think it's significant? It tells us something that the last generation will have a special diet as they carry out the Elijah message. Very important principle that before meeting with God, God changed Elijah's diet. And it's interesting that this Elijah later on was translated to heaven. And the same thing will happen to the last generation where they will actually meet with God. God will also give them instruction about dietary uh, requirements. That is, they will have a very special diet. And the question you need to ask yourself today is this. Are we just proclaiming the Elijah message or are we actually living the Elijah message in our lives? Now, of course, we understand, we know that Elijah was later translated. We don't have to go there. And Elijah is in heaven right now. Now, it's interesting what Elijah did. When he ate this food, the Bible says he fasted for how long? For 40 days. He went in the strength of that meat for, that food that is, for 40 days. Do you think that's a significant uh, detail that is recorded for us here? Now, what does it mean to fast for 40 days? Okay, we have a few mixed. I didn't hear any answers all at once. You can speak up. This is, you can answer. What would it mean to fast for 40 days? Yes, it's no food. What's I mean? What's the symbol for that? What what, the, what would that symbolize? Okay, okay. We have a few good answers. Gethsemane, the temptation. That's true. We're going to come to that. But refraining yourself from from food, what are you denying? You're denying your appetite, yourself, particularly that part of self which we call. The appetite. And so here we see that Elijah practiced what is called appetite control. There was a miracle, of course, but God did that miracle for Elijah to illustrate a principle for the last generation. That the last generation are going to have control over their appetite. Do you think appetite is an important thing to overcome and conquer? Yes, sir. It most certainly is, because Eve was tempted on what point? Appetite. And the first temptation of Christ was over? Appetite. And don't think that the last generation are going to be victims of their appetites. They won't be. They won't be able to finish the work until they actually fulfill the type in, in, in uh, 
Elijah that we're looking at. So the fasting for 40 days and the 40 nights, of course, is an illustration of what the last generation will do. They will be overcomers over appetite. And not only is it appetite, Elijah was fasting in what place? What part of the country was he at that time? He was in a desert or a wilderness, a part that's not inhabited. Why would you think that's important? Does that illustrate anything? Yes. What would it illustrate? Get out, okay, that's good. Get out of the cities, that's a good point. Elijah was away from people, Elijah was away from the world. He was fasting from the world as well. And that it tells us that God's people at the end of days, they will be almost like a wilderness when compared to the world. They will be so apart, it will be almost like the world has no influence on them. They will be separate and distinct from the world. Not only are they fasting and overcoming their appetites, not only are they fasting from food, but they're also fasting from the world. So, the question you need to ask yourself is, am I fasting from the world, or am I feasting with the world? That's a good question to remember, just a little play on words. But that's a question that is very important for God's people today. Because God's people, sometimes they can't be told apart from the world. Elijah illustrates for us the type, what God's pleasure is for us in the last days. Now, Elijah was denying appetites. That's the symbol that's given to us, denying self, denying lust, denying uh, himself of food. That's the miracle that God sustained him with. Now, an interesting thing that was mentioned before, do we know other people in the Bible that fasted for 40 days and 40 nights? Okay, Moses and Jesus. They're specific examples. Now, it's very interesting that if you compare these three examples that they fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, they're all connected. And they're very connected. They're connected with a very, very strong link. Moses was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights when what event was taking place? Okay, where was Moses when he fasted 40 days and 40 nights? Same place Elijah is going to. And Moses was receiving from God the Ten Commandments. So when Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments from God, he fasted for 40 days. When Elijah was going to the mountain of God, where the Ten Commandments were given, he fasted for 40 days. Now we also said Christ was fasting. Christ was fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, and he was tempted, and his temptations were to prove whether he would substantiate and uphold God's law, or whether he would fail. So we see the three instances are very connected. The fasting for 40 days has to do with the law of God. Moses fasted on the mountain of God receiving the Ten Commandments. Elijah going to the mountain where the Ten Commandments were given. And Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights to uphold the law of God. Now it's very interesting that these three individuals, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, who fasted for 40 days to uphold the law of God, all three met together on the Mount of Transfiguration. Isn't that interesting? And all three are alive now in heaven above, involved in what is taking place in the most holy place. What we call the investigative judgment, which has to do with what's the standard in the investigative judgment? The law of God. So God is telling the last generation a very important message in the details of Elijah's life. And that God's people will fast for 40 days and 40 nights. The symbol for that is they will be separate and distinct. They will overcome sin because their mission is to uphold the law of God before the world that is breaking the law of God. Very, very important principle. And it's, it's interesting that Christ was where we started the study tonight. Christ said, I have finished the work. And he actually literally fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, just like Elijah. 
Okay, another point that's important. Second Kings. Let's come to the next chapter quickly. Second Kings. Now this is another point and aspect in the life of Elijah that uh, we need to consider today as God's people and the type that it involves for the last generation. Now this is a very interesting story in the book of Second Kings. And we will read the first three verses of Second Kings chapter 1. Thank you. Second Kings chapter 1, first three verses. It says, Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. And Ahaziah fell through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick. And he sent messengers and said unto them, Go inquire of Baal-zabub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. Verse 3, But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go to, the, to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say unto them, is it, not that, is it not because there is not a God in Israel that you go to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? A very important point that comes out in this story. Elijah came to God's people again at a time when God's professed people were seeking for wellness elsewhere from where God told them to seek. The king of Samaria here, Ahaziah, was seeking for wellness and assurance of wellness from the gods of the other nations and disregarding God's instruction. And Elijah gave him a very strong rebuke. He told him, is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to seek of the gods of Ekron? Now there's a very important parallel for this, for God's people in the last generation. You know, God's people always are tempted to look over the fence and seek for health and wellness through the ways of the world. And the Elijah message comes to reprove that among God's people, that they are to return to the instruction that God has given them. The Elijah message has in it aspects of medical missionary work. A call to what we believe today, the medical missionary work, is the right arm of the gospel. And so the Elijah message comes at a time when God's people are actually neglecting that aspect. They are seeking for health and wellness among the other nations. And today we see that very clearly is happening. And we don't need to illustrate that by examples, I'm sure. And so it's very important. Elijah came and reproved that. And that as a result of this, the king, of course, died because he had rebelled against the counsel of God and seeking Wellness, health and wellness through alternative means that God did not sanction. A very, very important principle that is part of the life of Elijah. And so the last generation is going to uphold what Elijah said. They will uphold God's ways and God's methods of wellness and health, not the methods that are promoted by the others. Very, very important principle of Elijah. Let's look at another one. Same chapter. 2 Kings chapter 1, we'll go back again to Elijah, verses 7 and 8. Of course, now when the king, I'll just illustrate quickly, summarize these verses, the messengers came back to the king and they told him, you know, a man met us and he told us uh, uh, a very startling message, he said you were going to die. And so the king asked them in verse 7, and he said unto them, What manner of man was he which came up to meet you and told you these words? Verse 8, and the Sorry, answered him, 
He was an hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. What can we learn from this little uh, verse about Elijah the Tishbite? How did the king recognize who Elijah was? From his appearance. From his clothing. So Elijah was wearing distinctive clothing. Do you think that has any parallel or type at all for God's people in the last days? Yes, you better think it does. Elijah was recognized immediately upon uh, the messenger saying what type of clothing he was wearing. The king said, ah, that's Elijah the Tishbite. Elijah wore distinctive clothing. Do you think this is perhaps why God gave us testimonies through a spirit of prophecy regarding the way we dress, perhaps? Because the last generation is not only to declare the Elijah message, but they are to first of all live it in their lives. You know, there was a time in the history of our movement when you could tell a Seventh-day Adventist when they were walking on the street by the way they dressed. This time is past. I remember one time we went to a, a gathering of the churches, and the gathering was in the city, and you really could not tell who was an Adventist and who wasn't. We went there really to uh, help share some books with some people, and we thought, oh, it will be easy. The Adventists will be the ones dressed nicely because it's Sabbath. Well, we went there and we had a real uh, trial figuring out who's Adventist and who's not, because we thought we were judged by what they were wearing, and really we had no clue who was an Adventist and who wasn't. They all looked the same. Now, God's people are told through the story of Elijah, through the life of Elijah, that in the last days, God's people will have a distinctive dress. They will have a distinctive way in which they appear. Now, that's not to say that God's people have to look as odd as possible in order to distinguish themselves from the world. But all God's people have to do is follow the instruction that has been given to us in order to understand what God's will for us. If we truly desire to do those things that please Him. This is what we're looking at in the story of Elijah. Now let's come to 1 John chapter 2 and see how the Apostle gives us a spiritual application of some of these things. Why is God giving us these lessons in Elijah? 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. Here is the contest that we have that God's people need to settle in their hearts. 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This was illustrated in the life of Elijah. This will be illustrated again in the life of God's people in the last days, the last generation. So far we haven't really done anything except look at the life of Elijah. We haven't even touched on the Elijah message yet. And it's very important to understand that the Elijah message is more than just a message that is said. It is actually a message that is lived. And the examples that God has given us in His Word that He has chosen to record about the life of this man are typifying what God's requirements are for His people. The things that really please Him. Now, there's another illustration for this in the life of another man. Let's come to Matthew chapter 17, just to see if what we are saying is true. Does giving the Elijah message mean that we will also have a lifestyle like Elijah or not? 
Matthew chapter 17. And Matthew 17, we read about another man who is also referred to as the Elijah of the New Testament, who appeared before the coming of the Messiah. Matthew 17, reading from verses 11 to 13. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Verse 13. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. So according to Christ, John the Baptist fulfilled partly the message that Eli, the, the prophecy in Micah that we found that Elijah will come before the great day of God and he will restore all things. Jesus said, you know what? This has happened in the life of John the Baptist. But this is not the end of the prophecy because the Bible tells us in that prophecy that Elijah will come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So there is a more complete fulfillment again and a repetition of that fulfillment in the last days. But John the Baptist stands as another type for us to learn how is it or what is it that is pleasing to God in that last generation. So in John the Baptist giving the Elijah message, if we look at a few instances in his life, we will see how he gave that message. And we will find very uh, easily that in giving the Elijah message, John the Baptist did not only sound the message by his words, but he actually sounded it by his life, by his lifestyle. Let's look at Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 and verse 6. Mark chapter 1 and verse 6. And notice what the Bible, what uh, details the Bible chooses to record for us in order to understand what God's will for us in the last days is. Mark 1, 6 says, And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin about his loins. Does that sound familiar? And he did eat locusts and wild honey. So here the Bible records for us that John the Baptist had a distinctive dress. And he also had a distinctive diet. Now it's interesting to note that John the Baptist was actually a vegetarian. Did you know that? Well, three nods, that's good. A few people knew that. So John the Baptist not only gave the Elijah message, he actually lived it. And Jesus said he fulfilled that prophecy. So it's only when God's people in the last days actually live the Elijah message, carry it out first in their lives, and they can only do that if they're united with Christ and have an understanding of his will. Only then will they be qualified to be able to carry out what the Elijah message says in order to take it to the church and to the world. And the Elijah message definitely goes to the church because Elijah was first sent to God's professed people at the time. So John wore distinctive clothing. Where did John live? In the wilderness. It didn't say that verse, but we don't have to turn to another verse. We know John lived in the wilderness. Another example and a type in that he carried out in his life. In order to give the Elijah message, he actually practiced it in his life. He lived in the wilderness. You see, these things are recorded for us, not as facts that we can learn about these men. These things are recorded for us for a reason. These are types that are given for us to reveal to us God's will and what is pleasing to him. If we really love him and want to do those things that are pleasing to him. And so John in uh, conduct, in life, in dress, 
and in diet, he lived out the Elijah message. Now let's see what was it that John said. John chapter 1. We'll see what John the Baptist said as recorded by the disciple John in the Gospel of John chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. John chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Now notice what John answered when he was asked. And what else he said. John chapter 1 verse 22 says, Then said they unto him, Who art thou? This is the Pharisees asking John the Baptist, Who are you? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? Verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as did the prophet, as said, sorry, the prophet Isaiah. So when John was asked who he was, he quoted a passage from Isaiah. Now notice what else John says. Drop down to verse 29. The next day, verse 29, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So John's message, he said, I am the one, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of God. And then he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now where did John quote from when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness? He said, Isaiah, specifically in chapter 40. Let's go to Isaiah 40 and see that message that is recorded in the Old Testament that John preached, which we are told. We'll just go to Isaiah 40 and then we'll just summarize what we're trying to say. Isaiah chapter 40. Now Jesus said that John the Baptist fulfilled the coming of Elijah, in part. There's another fulfillment for us in the last days. But John the Baptist, in fulfilling the message of Elijah, we saw that he has lived the life of Elijah. And the message that he preached, he was quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, and he also said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. In other words, did John the Baptist preach the Elijah message? He must have, because Christ said John was a fulfillment of the coming of Elijah. So in looking at what John the Baptist preached, we also get a glimpse onto what the Elijah message is about. And John, when he answered his questioners what he was, he said that he was quoting from Isaiah, he said, prepare the way of the Lord. Let's look at Isaiah and see what is it about Isaiah that can give us insight into the Elijah message. Isaiah chapter 40. Let's look at verse 9 and 10. Let's actually look at verse 3 before we read 9 and 10. Verse 3 says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So this is the the passage that John was quoting. Now let's look at verse 9 and 10 and see what message is given there. It says, O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. So the Elijah message is to bring prominently before the world a revelation of God. It says, Behold your God. When the Elijah message says, Behold your God, it doesn't only say it in words, but it also says it in deeds. That is in action. So by our actions, the last generation is to say to the world, Behold your God. Look at verse 10. See what else is involved in this message. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, 
His reward is with him and his work before him. Now when the Bible says his reward is with him, does that remind you of anything that Jesus said? It says when the Son of Man shall come and he will have what with him? His reward with him. And we know that God will give you the reward after he has finished a process to determine who will receive a reward and who will not receive a reward. And what is this process known to us as? Investigative judgment. And so we see here that the work of judgment, the investigative judgment, is part of the Elijah message. This takes us directly to Revelation chapter 14, which tells us to fear God, give glory to Him. We looked at giving glory to God earlier. And worship Him for the hour of His judgment is come. And so we see the Elijah message is summarized for us in the life of Elijah. John confirmed for us that in order to give the Elijah message, you must live it in your life. And he said the message that he gave was a message to restore to God's people a knowledge of God and to present to the world a revelation of God, saying, Behold, your God, this is a message that we find is written for us in the book of Revelation. So, to make it straight to the point, in order to give the three angels messages, you must live the life of Elijah. Not just say or speak about it, you must live it. That's what to qualify you and to qualify me to do this work. Now, this is really what Christ wants us to do when he said that they might all be one. It's only through union with Christ that we can do and accomplish this. And so, the first thing is to show obedience and submission to the will of God for us. And to understand what is pleasing to him. To understand the types that he has placed for us in the Bible. To understand what is his will for us in the last days. And until we do that, until we actually personally and individually unite with Christ on our, on our individual uh, level, we will not be able to unite with each other. So the first step to seek in union with each other is to unite with Christ. And to unite with Christ, as Jesus said, I do the things that please the Father, we do the things that please Christ. Tonight we read about some things that God is pleased that his people are to do in the last days. So the question for you and me tonight is this. Have we fulfilled the type? Are you living the life that we read about today? Have you made that decision? Have you made that commitment in your life? Because God is calling each and every one of us today to be an Elijah. Because God's desire is to finish the work. And we looked at the principles of how that is to happen. Only union with Christ and fulfilling that which is pleasing to Him. In Jeremiah chapter 29, our closing text, let's read it together. Jeremiah chapter 29. You know, God, uh, many times we shrink back when we think about that. You know, God wants you and me. He's calling us to be like Elijah. And this is why the Bible records for us some of the instances in the life of that great man who is in heaven right now, waiting for those on earth who will learn the lesson of his life and repeat it. Many times we think, you know, not me, maybe someone else. I'm, uh, I don't think I'm fit. But the Bible gives us a beautiful promise here in Jeremiah 29. And uh, if we read that together, now we were in Fiji recently, and uh, when we were sharing there in Fiji, when we, use, when we turn our Bibles and say, let's read it together, you know what happens? Everybody starts reading with me. 
And at first, when, uh, when that happened, that kind of took me back a little bit, but it was very interesting. And I say, let's read it. So I was careful that when I say, let's turn to the text, whether I say, let's read it together or not. What I meant, of course, that we'd read it together, you follow in your Bible what I'm saying. But they understood that they are to read it with me. And so it sounded very nice as we read the text and everybody's reading the text together. So this time I'll say, let's read this text together, as they would in Fiji, for example. And let's all read Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11 together. And it says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. You know, God has very great and marvelous plans for you and me. He has very good thoughts towards you and me. And these thoughts, he wants to, he calls us to be Elijah in our life today, to be witnesses for him in the last days. And uh, this is the question that we really need to examine ourselves and examine our hearts and ask ourselves the question, am I really seeking that unity with Christ to fulfill his will, to live out the life that he wants me to live for him today? Am I living the Elijah message in my life? You know, when we come to camps and uh, and it's good to be together and enjoy fellowship with each other and catch up. But another important aspect of camps is to have fellowship, especially with our Father in Heaven, through His Son. And uh, we do that through a very important process that we read about in the Family Focus, and that's prayer. And prayer is a very important aspect that is, when God's people come together, it is a powerful force that can turn the world upside down. You know, it was the disciples that came together, and when they prayed, things started happening. And so a very important aspect of coming together at camps, especially, you know, to make use of the opportunity that people have come from near and far, come together, is to uh, assault heaven with prayers. Because God's people can never pray too much. You'll never get to heaven and think, you know, I prayed too much when I was on earth. You will never have to say that. And especially when God's people gather together uh, in times as this, that when they pray, that God has promised when my people pray and humble themselves, that he will pour out a rich blessing on us. So in closing, rather than me closing with prayer tonight, what I'd like us to do is if we could please pair up and team up in teams of two, two people each, and just quietly in a little corner or a little huddle, I want us all to pray together and send up rather than one prayer, a lot of prayers tonight in heaven. And as you pray together, pray about these things that we come here together to learn about in order to practice in our lives. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.